Welcome to episode 44 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we discuss all things relating to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Dermot. And I'm Kelly. All right, we are here recording on a beautiful, rainy Saturday. And we are going to start out today. There's a lot going on in this episode, I'd say. We have our usual text discussion of a little section of Proteus, but we're going to be covering a shorter than usual section of the book because we have a little special guest interview at the end. So we're going to get started right at the top here by having Dermot talk about his artwork that he did for this episode, where we are going to discuss the paragraph from Proteus that starts Galleys of the Lachlans. If you'd like to see Dermot's artwork, if this is your first time listening, we also have a website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. Dermot does our artwork, and he is going to describe the artwork he did for this episode, which you can see at the website. What did you come up with for this one, Dermot? What, what did you do for these Lachlans? Well, it was the passage where he has a vision of his ancestors from Dublin, and they're a motley crew of Vikings and medieval peasants and gherkins and all the rest of it. <laughs> gherkins. Uh, and he's been uh, sort of haunted by them, let's say. So I thought, let's have Stephen been chased by them. So we get to actually draw fun stuff. So we have uh, the Viking horde and the medieval side bearers and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fun. This is, of all the illustrations you did for our blog about Proteus, this, I think, was my favorite one. Because it is, you. your background is in animation, mm-hmm. and I can really see that influence here. I, I can almost feel Stephen running and the people in the background. Like, I know it's a still image, but I feel like it's moving when I look at mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you can animate that. Once again, if you want to check that out, pop over to our website. The show notes will include this image. We've got a few little items of business here. First of all, we want to say thank you to our friend Owen Ahern for his donation. Thank you very much. If you would like to donate as well, stay tuned at the end of this episode. There's information in the outro, and you can also find the donate link on our website. Also, if you would like to get involved in Blooms and Barnacles, you can. Because, as you are probably aware, most of us are going to be at home this year for Bloomsday. So we thought we'd bring a Bloomsday to all of your homes. We are recording a special Bloomsday episode of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where people from all over the world are reading their favorite snippets of Ulysses. And we're going to edit it into a big mega show that will come out on the 16th. There is still time if you would like to submit. Please visit our website at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Hopefully that is ingrained in your memory at this point, bloomsandbarnacles.com. And look at the top of the page. It says Bloomsday 2020. Go ahead and click that, and you can get some information. You can also email me at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com, and uh, we can chat about that. So we'd love to have you. Don't be shy. If you have even a little bit of an inkling that you might like to do it, get in touch. We won't say no. Anyone who thought it was a rigorous audition process and you were one of the lucky few to make it through, that is patently false. (laughs) Pretty much let everybody join. (laughs) All right. I teased a little bit that we have a special segment at the end of our show. If you're a longtime listener, you might remember friend of the show, Steve Carey, who helps organize the Bloomsday in Melbourne in uh, celebration in Melbourne, Australia. If you want to listen to his episode, it's from about a year ago. He came on and talked about their really innovative use of theater in celebrating the works of Joyce and Ulysses in particular. Obviously, they can't have a theater performance this year. So he is going to tell us a little bit about what they are doing. And it's going to be broadcast on Facebook. So if you want to watch, you can watch, even if you're not. In the land of Oz, like Steve is. Stay tuned after Dermot and I are finished yammering on. And you can hear Steve and I yammer on about his project in Melbourne. It's really, really cool. So I'm not going to say anything more. So please stick around for that. Dermot, you've been sitting patiently by while I talk in my radio voice. Yes. All right, should we dive into this text? Yeah. We're on 
Page 45 of Proteus Today, that page number comes from my edition, the Vintage International Edition from 1990. Dermot, as always, will read the passage and then give us some thoughts. Go for it. Galleys of the Lachlans ran here to beach, in quest of prey, their blood-big prows riding low on a molten pewter surf. Dane Vikings, torques of tomahawks glitter on their breasts when Malachi wore the collar of gold. A skull of turlhide whales, stranded in hot noon, spouting, hobbling in the shallows. Then, from the starving cagework city, a horde of jerkin dwarves, my people, with flares knives, running, scaling, hacking in green, blubbery whale meat, famine, plague and slaughters. Their blood is in me, their lusts my waves. I moved among them on the frozen liffy, that I, a changeling, among the spluttering resin fires. I spoke to no one, none to me. Thank you so much, Dermot. What, what's on your mind right now? It's the vision of his ancestors. Um, if you've ever had one, it can be fairly intense, mm-hmm. which I have. A lot of alcohol had been involved. Very vivid. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can imagine that. And my hometown's a Viking colony, Arklo. Mm-hmm. So, um, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So, you know, you're descended somewhere far back enough from really crazy people. So I think Dublin too, another Viking town, mm-hmm. Wexford, a lot of them, most of the big Irish old towns are you know, Viking. And then like, uh, Turlehide, did I pronounce that right? Turlehide I would Wales? say Turlehide is how um, I've been pronouncing okay. it. Um, so I think some whales have beached and out come the starving people to chop them up and uh, have a dinner. So it's pretty rough. And jerkin dwarfs, I think a jerkin, was that like a leather kind of uh, cloak or a a, a leather shirt. Yeah, yeah, worn in the medieval era. Yeah, so they're not dressed in like the finest finery then. Let's see, famine, plague and slaughter. So I guess the happy history of Ireland. Um, their blood is in me. Yeah, like he's our descendant and got some of that carrying on inside. And I think a sense of alienation. I spoke to no one, none to me. You know, he's, I think, as he feels connect, disconnected from mm-hmm. the country in the past. Yeah, yeah. All right, good. So here's a, a larger question. Do you remember what happened just before this in our last episode? He's still walking on that interminable strand? Mm-hmm. But do you remember what he was saying or doing? No. He kind of came to the end of the beach, remember, because he said, oh, I, I guess I can get back into Dublin by the Poolbeg Road. So he's mm-hmm. near there uh, on the north end of Sandy Mount Strand, if you're not familiar. Mm-hmm. And he sits on a rock. The rock's placed there by the race of Sir Lout. Right. He rests his ash plant in a grike. Mm-hmm. And he thinks about how he won't return to the tower. And then he sees a dog approaching from the other side of the beach. And he's afraid the dog will bite him. Yes. Mm. And the dog doesn't. Mm. And then the next thing that happens, galleys of the Lachlans. Mm. So... Why it's structured in quite that way is a question we'll discuss at the end, but it's something I want you to kind of just think about for now. Okay. All right. Shall we pick this apart? Sure. Like a bunch of a ravening horde of Vikings? Mm. Chopping on the whale. So, galleys of the Lachlans ran here to beach in quest of prey, their blood-beaked prows riding low on a molten pewter surf. Some great, like, scary imagery there. You can really like see the Viking longships coming over the horizon. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as you mentioned, Dublin was founded by Vikings around the 10th century. There seems like there are probably settlements there before that, but Dublin as Dublin is known as a Viking city. And they hung around until the Battle of Clontarf in 1014. So they were they were there for a while. Vikings generally got around in what are called longships which are indeed long, flat ships, which are powered by oars. I bring this up because a galley is also a long, flat ship powered by oars. However, a long ship usually only has one bank of oars, which is better for navigating over open sea, mm-hmm. as the Vikings were right. likely to do. Uh, whereas a galley has multiple banks of oars um, and it's more often associated with the Mediterranean and the fickle winds mm. that one might find there. Having three rows of trireme. oarsmen, yes, mm-hmm. called a trireme, could be used to, to deal with the, the weather found in the Mediterranean. Do you know? Do we know anyone else who got around the Mediterranean in a, a Greek trireme? Did they get blown off course? He may have. Mm-hmm. That's Odysseus, Ulysses. Yeah. 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 So I think that's why 
he chose that particular word here. Right. Um, it's anachronistic, but mm-hmm. you know, mm. we're I think we're comfortable with anachronism in Ulysses. Yeah. All right. Uh, Lachlan, what is a Lachlan? Uh, I had no idea until mm-hmm. I read this. No, no idea. Mm-hmm. It's meant to mean Viking, presumably in the Irish language. If you are interested in philology or linguistics, as you should be, because that is the art of Proteus is philology, mm-hmm. study of language. And if you are interested in the modern Irish language as I am, you might go ahead and search for this word in a dictionary of Irish, like an Irish-English dictionary. There's a very popular one online called terma.ie, which is pretty comprehensive. And when you type in Lachlan, it will come back, no results found. Hmm. The closest I could find was Creek Lachlanach, which means Scandinavia, or just Lachlanach which means Viking or a Scandinavian. Hmm. So it's basically the spelling you'll see here with A-C-H on the end. So I thought, well, maybe we need to look in an older dictionary. So this sort of uh, venerable grandfather of Irish dictionaries is Deneen's Dictionary, which was put together by Father Deneen, who was teaching at Clongo's Wood College when uh, young James Joyce was there. And it's a very colorful dictionary because there's a lot of words in it that aren't really used anymore, but really show the, the vibrant nature of the Irish language. Father Deneen also lists Lachlanach, but he makes a, di- a distinction between a Dov Lachlanach, or a Black Viking, which he defines as a Dane, and a Fion Lachlanach, or a Blonde Viking, which he defines as a Norwegian. Hmm. I don't know what that's about. But you do want to be pr- careful when you are pronouncing this because as and I've I've kind of screen capped this from the online version of Deneen's dictionary and put it in our show notes so you can see it but this is right above the entry for Loch Lane which could be mean Loch Lane and Killarney or it could mean a corrupt gathering in the armpits so it's better to be a Loch Lan than a Loch Lane Hmm. any connection to the surname Lachlan possibly Hmm. I, I is is that an Irish surname, or is it Scottish? Uh, I, I thought it was Irish. Okay. L-O-U-G-H-L-A-N. Mm, that's a, a good question, and one I don't have the answer to. Mm. But yeah, I, so I don't know why Joyce landed on this, because it seems like even the Irish dictionary available at that time would have been a, a different word. But I have to assume that Stephen's Irish isn't very good, because he was so disgusted by Haynes that he was... <laughs> turned off from ever learning it properly. Right. So (laughs) we'll just leave that as our interpretation. Dane Vikings, torques of tomahawks, a glitter on their breasts when Malachi wore the collar of gold. So these Dane Vikings, they must be the Dovlachlanach. We can assume they're Mm dark-haired. So when you're forming your mental picture, they uh, have dark hair. Torques of tomahawks. Let's talk about this. So a torque, how would you describe a torque? If you're ever in Dublin, the National Museum has a ton of them. There are these gold collars, quite big, that go around the neck and they're for clasping cloaks and robes. And I've never quite been able to figure out exactly how they worked based on the size. They don't look very ergonomic, but they do look very impressive. Mm-hmm. And if uh, I ever go metal detecting uh, in <laughs> Ireland, I hope I dig up one. Yes, Dermot's told me it's his dream to find a, a golden torque in the mm, ground. Yes. Yeah, they're sort of a twisted metal collar worn uh, mainly by Iron Age Celts, so around two to 3,000 years ago in Ireland and Britain, and elsewhere where you might find Iron Age Celts many hundreds of years before the Vikings ever came on the scene. So while you can go on Etsy and find many folks willing to sell you a Viking torque, it's not something that was really associated with that culture, but mm. with the... Um, cultures found in Ireland and Britain about a thousand years before the Vikings to be honest. A tomahawk is a style of axe that is used by um, various tribes of indigenous people in North America. So if also not used by Vikings, this this phrase has kind of confounded me. It's really, its meaning is really unclear. If you check Gifford and Seidman's annotation, they kind of speculated that it could refer to like Viking armor or mail that was emblazoned with axes, but I don't. I personally didn't find an example that looked like that. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. What do you think? 
I would think the Vikings have axes with two on each mm -hmm. side. I can't have a mental image of them having those, mm -hmm. so, um, which would look like an Indian tomahawk. So yeah. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I've also heard it interpreted that maybe they were coming ashore with two axes kind of slung around their neck, mm -hmm. which I would think would lead to some accidental Serious decapitation. injuries, yeah. So I don't, yeah, I, I don't really understand why it's phrased quite this way. Yeah, because a glitter on their breasts, it really does suggest that they have it like hanging from their mm -hmm. shoulders onto their chest. But speaking of golden collars, when Malachi wore the collar of gold, who's Malachi? Have a clue. All right. Well, Malachi is Buck Mulligan's given name. He's actually Malachi Mulligan. Oh. This phrase, when Malachi wore the collar of gold, is a line directly taken from a 19th century song called Let Aaron Remember the Days of Old. I found a version of it on YouTube sung by Tommy Makem, and it, about 49 seconds in, I'll put the, the link in the show notes, uh, you can hear this line, and I will also uh, put a little snippet of it um, at the end of our show. The verse goes, Let Aaron remember the days of old, ere her faithless sons betrayed her, when Malachi wore the collar of gold, which he won from her proud invader. We've already talked about Telemachus. Buck Mulligan is associated with the color gold. Malachi is also the anglicized name of the Irish High King uh, around this time. Um, and he would be High, high King Will Shocknell MacDonald. But we call him Malachi because that's what they have here. Uh, so one of his many claims to fame was that he defeated the Vikings at the Battle of Tara in 980 AD. And he reclaimed... Dublin, and he freed some of the Viking slaves there. He was later driven by power from the Dalcassians, who were Brian Bruce men. You might remember them from mm -hmm. Kevin Egan's drunken right. tale telling. He kind of pulled a Grover Cleveland and had a second high kingship. He retook the high kingship when um, much of the Dalcassian leadership was killed at the Battle of Clontarf. That was in 1014. Um, so in in between his his early def his his early victory and then that that's his connection to the Dane Vikings. Does that make sense? Yep. You follow me so far? Yep. All right. Uh, a school of Turlahide whales stranded in hot noon, spouting, hobbling in the shallows. So fast forward now from the 11th century and Viking times to medieval. Dublin. What, what's your, your, your picture of, of medieval Dublin? Lots of smoke, dung, and uh, disease. All right. Yeah. Well, 1331 is the exact year we're going to talk about, and Dublin was in the grips of a terrible famine. So medieval Dublin was unfortunately no stranger to famines. Uh, there were similar catastrophic famines in 1295, and then a major European famine in the 1310s. So... To put this in perspective, in one adult lifespan, this is roughly a, a, four, a 40 to 50 year period, a Dubliner from this time period potentially could have experienced two to three famines that each harsh enough to result in reports of cannibalism. So, uh, rough times. Mm -hmm. Friar John Clynn of Kilkenny. Friar John Clynn was a, uh, a well-known medieval chronicler like I said, out of Kilkenny. And he wrote that in the year 1331, in amongst all the misery and this particular famine, that around 200 Turlahide whales miraculously beached themselves outside the walls of Dublin on the, the, the banks of the sea and sort of relieving the famine for a short while like blubbery manna from heaven. So that's what this refers to. Hmm. Then from the starving cagework city, a horde of jerkined dwarves, my people, with flayers' knives, running, scaling, hacking, and green blubbery whale meat. So kind of an unsexy picture here of uh, Stephen's medieval Dublin forebears. Mm -hmm. uh, they're sort of violent, misshapen, and desperate, sort of a, a ravening horde who were spilling out of this filthy medieval city with their flaying knives and he calls them jerkin and dwarves so they're wearing kind of rough clothing and they're they're not very tall presumably because they're not well nourished mm. or i think stephen 
in in thinking about this history, it seems to me like he must have a hard time connecting to such a visceral experience of of these people hacking these whales apart on a beach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then realizing if he had been born in the 1300s, he would have been one of these guys. Yep. yep. I think the, the way Stephen kind of conceptualizes himself is so far removed from this. Yeah. Um, and I think as a result kind of holds these distant ancestors at an arm's length before reminding him really that perhaps the heart of a jerkin dwarf beats within the man deadless. Within us all. Yeah. Mm. Do you feel connection to this? Is this how you see your ancestors? Oh, yeah. yeah. We've got all of them. I mean, you've got so many ancestors by this point. Every one of us has jerkin dwarfs and... Vikings and all kinds of weird things back there. You just go back far enough. Mm-hmm. Royal, we're all descended from royal somewhere. Mm-hmm. And just you know, sometimes the, you know, we're on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. You know, mm-hmm. or different aristocratic lines die out, fall into disrepair, and become poor, and mm-hmm. forget they were ever rich, and then they're peasants again. Yeah. So that's why snobbery is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. All right, famine, plague, and slaughters. We'll go through this real quick. So. The short version of this is that the 14th century was the worst. Mm-hmm. I wrote a blog post about this last year that is also entitled Galley of the Lachlans, and you can find that on our website, and we will link it in the show notes if you want to read about this. But I'm going to go through this a little quick. So, again, I, I think this is referring... All of these things have happened throughout Irish history, but they were particularly pronounced in the medieval era. So, as we mentioned just before, in 1315, this was the year of the Great European Famine, which was caused by a mini ice age, which resulted in colder than usual winters and worse harvests as a result. So, mini ice age, man. Mm. That, that's always what gets me. It's like there are all these social problems, I think, that stem from this and many other things in the 14th century. But, right. you know, on top of it, mini ice age. Yeah. The Bruce invasion uh, from Scotland was that same year in 1315. We'll talk about that a bit more in a couple of episodes. Um, and I think, if not, it is on our, our website too. And then the Black Death, the bubonic plague was in 1348. So there's your famine, there's your plague, and there's your slaughters. All within a few years of each other. Again, like conceivably within one person's lifetime. Right. Didn't Barbara Tuckman write about the 14th century in A Distant Mirror? A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tuckman, yeah, is um, written from the point of view of a a French nobleman. Um, Mm. But does touch on a lot of these issues as well. Very good book. Uh, Their blood is in me, their lusts my waves. So Stephen is kind of acknowledging his ancestry here again, that he's descended as a Dubliner in 1904 from these rough, hard scrabble peasant people. They're lust my waves, right? He he I think sees them as kind of barbarous and almost animalistic the way he describes them here. And he's thinking that maybe their their barbaric ways are kind of running in his veins and they, they could surface in him too. Mm-hmm. You notice this kind of ocean and tide imagery here. That you know, may you know, maybe the the barbaric nature of his ancestors has retreated, leaving this noble po- poet. But that tide's going to come in eventually. And before he knows it, he's chopping up a whale. Mm-hmm. Mm. I moved among them on the frozen liffy that I, a changeling among the spluttering resin fires, I spoke to no one and none to me. And yeah, you called out really well this um, sort of alienation that you'd find in this line. Yep. This also speaks to a specific 14th century event in Dublin. In 1338... So just a few years after those whales washed up, Dublin experienced a particularly frigid winter, like we said, very cold winters at this time. And during that winter, the Liffey froze solid, enough that you could walk out on it. And not just walk on it, but um, people were reported to have been playing football and cooking herons, or herrings, not herons, herrings, over open fires on the surface of the river. Wow. So Stephen is imagining him kind of walking through this winter revelry, but no one really sees him. And he describes himself as a changeling. What's a, a changeling? Well, the idea that the uh, the fairies or the elves would steal your child and replace mm-hmm. it with a different child. It's physically identical, but 
it's not one of the family. Mm-hmm. It's different. It's an alien creature. Mm-hmm. I think that's how Stephen kind of sees himself mm-hmm. amongst modern Dubliners, yep. as he would have been amongst these medieval Dubliners, where he really would have been a foreigner in many ways. Okay, so we're here at our last little section, and the thing I asked you to consider, where where does this fit into Ulysses? Like, he goes from, like, sitting in real time in reality on the beach, thinking, like, oh, F those guys in the tower, I'm not going back there, they're a bunch of jerks, oh, a dog, to, like, you know, Vikings coming ashore, the horrors of the Middle Ages, he's walking amongst the people on the frozen Liffey, and then... In the next paragraph, he goes back into reacting to his surroundings. Again. Mm-hmm. Right. We, what's up with that? Why is it like that? Because he's, he's, he's trapped in his own head. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got, I've got some, uh, what do you call it, some theories about this. Mm-hmm. Because it, it is really abrupt. Like, it yeah. go, this is just one very short paragraph between two fairly but long I do this. I do this myself when I'm walking okay. down the street. So I, I don't think it's weird. Well, speak to us from the soul of an artist, then. No, that's just that's what I do. I think of the past. I think of all the dead people. Mm. You know, like all those people that used to live in caves. Sometimes I'll be walking down the street and I'll think of Herzog's documentary, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, mm-hmm. in Chauvet Cave. And how somebody did a painting of one of the animals. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else finished it. And 5,000 years separated the person who painted the first part from the person who finished it. Mm-hmm. They had no comprehension of that span of time. That makes the Vikings seem like it was yesterday. A blip. And this was 33,000 and 28,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think of that all the time. Because sometimes I find the present kind of banal. So it's nice to think about. But Arnold Toynbee, the historian, said when people are in, you know, Collapsing civilizations that console themselves with fantasies of the future or visions of a distant past. Just the trick is not to get trapped in them, confuse mm-hmm. them with reality, or take them too much, too solid. Think that's what Stephen is doing. Might be, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think his world is collapsing around him anyway, mm-hmm. so he's he's probably lashing his thoughts around, trying to find mm-hmm. other things that are maybe to him more dynamic mm-hmm. and less banal than the dog mm-hmm. chasing him on Sandy Mount Strand. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he's kind of idealizing the past? No, I don't. <laughs> no, no, it's not. And he's not romanticizing it. There's no like noble savage stuff, or there's the danger would be you'd actually go too far to the other extreme and you'd make it too barbaric. Mm. Uh, he might be doing that. Yeah, um, we can't really know. Can't hard to tell. Yeah, because we have the the medieval period is everyone's whipping boy. Mm-hmm. Um, not that there was a party either, but it wasn't like yeah. the the hellscape that it, you know you might often think. But like having taking into account the famines and plagues and. Mm-hmm. So the 14th century was a nightmare. The 14th century, like, from my understanding, the, you know, the 13th century was all right. There mm-hmm. was a big population boom. Yeah. And then the 14th century just had, like, look, extra people. To... Here's the thing. If you die and you uh, go to heaven and you meet God and he says, look, you're going to get reincarnated. You've got two choices, the 12th century or the 14th. Pick the 12th. Mm-hmm. You won't or the 13th. Be... Yeah, but the 12th is better. Well, the the... The twelfth has like the Norman invasions and England. Yeah. It has they've a Viking. Got, they've you know. all got something going on, but the twelfth—that's right. when you get your twelfth-century Renaissance. That's okay. fun. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, you've if you're a scholastic it. type, yeah. All right. So we've talked about your your philosophical version here. Mm-hmm. Let's talk mm-hmm. about a, a weirdo version. Mm-hmm. Could Stephen be experiencing what is known as a time slip? Now, getting back to Toynbee again, he did experience these. One of the great historians of the 20th century. And let's, he had let's time slips. Let's define time slip real quick. Yes. So Toynbee was at a battlefield from uh, one of the ancient wars, Carthage or whatever. And he wrote that suddenly he saw the cavalry like running past him. And he saw them, he heard them, he smelled them. Mm-hmm. And it was as if for a moment he was back there. Now, this is a man who had like a, a extreme knowledge of the period. So then you wonder, okay, well, you know, did he travel back in time for a blip? Was his mind mm-hmm. attuned to be able to do that? And reports of time slips, people in Britain have seen Roman legions walking down these little country lanes. Mm-hmm. One person saw the legion, but only their, their, from their chest up, they were, the rest of them were buried under the ground as though because the, the soil had, the soil had risen higher, yeah. over time, which strongly suggests that some kind of weird anomaly. Now, if we're, we're putting on our tinfoil here, yes, you well, know, Proteus so, is the most esoteric episode, yeah. so we get to be weird when we're yeah. talking about this. So anyway, that's the idea of time slips. Either mm. you're, you're seeing it or you're experiencing it or in some sense it's real. Um, the time is 
you know, mm -hmm. as freaky at the at the macro level as it is at the micro yeah. level. Are you familiar with the the term the um, Akasha or the Akasha or the Akashic Record? The Akashic Record, yes. Define that, please. It's the idea that everything that has ever happened is stored in the mm -hmm. great uh, cosmic memory bank or library. Every mm -hmm. book that's ever been burned still exists. So I bring this up because Stephen brings it up uh, a few chapters down the road in a, an episode called Eolus. He refers to a vision of Daniel O'Connell giving a speech trapped in the Akashic Record. Mm -hmm. So there's a theory then that, that Stephen is, is, as being a more sensitive person, is, is able to access this. This library, this yeah. record. Mm -hmm. he's, he's a bit unstuck in time himself. Mm hmm and that, that's kind of what he's experiencing here. This is so abrupt and hallucinatory. And then it kind of goes right back into reality mm -hmm. or Stephen's version of reality. And there's so many elements in Proteus too that may or may not really be there or are just things of Stephen's own imagining. And it kind of goes back to that, that Berkeleyan idea of, you know, we're interpreting our reality. It's not as objective as we think it is. Right. Like if we talk about our midwives, like he imagines them carrying the, the corpse of an infant, but... There's no textual evidence or mm -hmm. any investigation on his part. That's just what he thinks about. Right. I've, I've seen interpretations, too, where the, the midwives don't exist, that they are also figments of Stephen's imagination. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we should hear from the, the man himself. So this is um, it's a recollection about Joyce that was, I found in the New York Times. It was printed in 1979, well after his death. But this is, uh, this is what... Joyce has to say, and, and Dermot's going to read that for us. The hallucinations in Ulysses are made up out of elements from the past, which the reader will recognize if he has read the book five, ten, or twenty times. Here is the unknown. There is no past, no future. Everything flows in an eternal present. All the languages are present, for they have not yet been separated. It's a Tower of Babel. Besides, in a dream, if someone speaks Norwegian to you, you are not surprised to understand it. The history of people is the history of language. So who's writing this? No, Joyce that's said Joyce that. Him, that's yeah. Joyce himself saying this? Oh, okay. Yeah, so I think he had this notion of time is, is overlapping. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all one big jumble. We're just experiencing one particular thread of it. Right. Like there's, in, in, um, there's various theories of eternalism, uh, like the Nietzschean idea, that the, everything that was and is and will be already exists. Mm -hmm. And um, the horror of that is, uh, as explained in the TV series True Detective, is that every crime and atrocity still exists. They're not in the past, they're happening right now. And uh, the block theory of the universe in quantum, some quantum theorists suggest that the, we live in a four dimensional block and there is no like moving of time. It's a trick played on us by our sense perceptions, which is a head wrecker. And anyone looking to have their heads really wrecked should watch the TV show Devs, D-E-V-S. Mm -hmm. And I loved it and I can't get it out of my head. And that's all I'm going to say. And you shouldn't read anything about it. Okay. Cool. All right. Thanks, Dermot. So I've got one more interpretation of this that I would like to add as well. And that this is um, Stephen attempting to construct in his mind an Irish identity. Because he, I think he feels lost amongst... Um, you know, this, this large city um, in a British colony, essentially, um, that the people like Yeats and Lady Gregory who are trying to construct their own version of Irish identity, it doesn't really include him mm -hmm. because it's, first of all, a fantastical identity and that it also, um, it's solely for the upper classes. Yep. It doesn't really include someone like Stephen or even Joyce himself. So this is his his construction of an Irish identity. So he's encountered several visions of Irish identity that this morning of June 16th, um, and they tend to render Ireland as a victim of historical circumstance um, or a per perpetual victim of, of Britain's moral turpitude. Um, sort of Ireland as that willowy little boy, Cyril Sargent, a snail without a shell that we met back in the <laughs> Yes. Um, you know, or like the, the, the milk woman or, mm. oh, I suppose history is to blame, says mm -hmm. Haynes or, mm -hmm. you know. Great passive voice there, Mr. Haynes. Yeah, yeah or, you know, kind of Buck Mulligan is this like cheerful, babbling um, idiot who mm -hmm. has everything in the world and 
doesn't think about anything. Right. Stephen is crafting an active identity here for Dubliners, reaching into their past, right back to their founding when the 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 Dane Vikings first rolled up on the shores, right? That they they fought for themselves. You know, there were people mm -hmm. like the High King Malachi who was fighting to repel these invaders. Uh, that they they were survivors. You know famine, slaughters, and plagues, they survived all of that. Like, when you start reading medieval Irish history, the, the question that came to my mind over and over is, uh, how are there any people left? Yeah. How could anyone, you know, survive? And it, it so it, it, it shows us that the people of Ireland are survivors, if nothing else, and, and that they're strong enough that they can find a moment to revel on the frozen river in in the midst of this unfathomable horror, you know, that like, it's so cold, this, this cold that will probably cause many of the crops to fail or mm -hmm. people not to have food, but they still take a moment to play football and yeah. roast weenies or whatever else they were doing and just prevailing despite facing constant annihilation. And I, f I find that actually very uplifting. Mm. Um, I don't know if inspirational is the right word, but when I first, <laughs> when I first, uh, Research this. I was uh, I was driving with an employee of mine at the time, uh, and I was telling her like, you know, I I know like stuff sucks now in twenty nineteen, but you could have lived in the fourteenth century. It was so much worse, and everyone survived except for all the people that really didn't. didn't yeah. But but humanity survived. We yes yeah. The eyes may not have survived, but the we survived mm -hmm. yeah. in this big confused soup. Of existence. So, uh, Stephen observes in his mind's eye these hardy folk. Still not sure where he fits in quite, as he's always the outsider in this, the city of his birth, but he knows that he is the heir of these hard men, even though he feels like a changeling, you know, sort of mm. as this, you know, outsider. But, you know, like at some, at some point, he does have that strength and that tenacity and that survival ability yeah it's gonna be all right yeah uh we'll, we'll leave it there for now um we'll come back to our text analysis in july if you can believe it we're recording this in may um our next episode will be the bloomsday episode so please do check that out uh we're going to fade out with uh that music about what malachi wearing the collar of gold i'll put a link to the full song in our show notes take a moment to Think about your ancestors and also to think about uh, Steve Carey and Bloomsday and Melbourne's. And thanks, Bloomsday Steve, also for asking me to uh, to draw the cartoons for you guys. That oh, yes. Cool. Yeah, your artwork got used on their site. So yes. if you guys want to see that, um, check out their Facebook page. It's Bloomsday in Melbourne. We'll link to that in our show notes as well. All right. Uh, happy Bloomsday to you, one and all. Just remember, we are survivors. We will still be here in some capacity. <laughs> All right. Thanks for your support and your ears. Bye. Bye. Hey, I am here with Steve Carey from Bloomsday in Melbourne in Australia. Steve has been on an episode of our podcast last year for Bloomsday. And because everything is a little different now in 2020, and we're all rethinking our Bloomsday plans, Steve wanted to talk about how their plans have changed in Melbourne. And I think there it's a really innovative way to handle Bloomsday. And I don't want to say too much more about it because I think Steve can do a much better job. So Steve, can you tell us a little bit about what you had planned for Bloomsday and how you guys have adapted to a Bloomsday where you can't all be in the same room together? Absolutely. Hi, Kelly. I, I remember it was about this time last year, I suppose, that we were talking about Last year we did Tom Stoppard's Travesties, uh, 
So this year we decided we were going to do something different and we didn't realize then how different it was going to end up being. We were planning a, a, a kind of an immersive piece, which we're still planning to do around a year in Joyce's life when he's back, more or less where you're at in Proteus in, uh, in Bloomsday on, in 1904 when Joyce, not talking about Stephen here, but Joyce is back with his tail between his legs having been in Paris and his mother has died and it's a real kind of low point for him. And then he meets Nora Barnacle and things start to turn around. So we, we were aiming to do it in, a, in an old Victorian late 19th century house here in Melbourne uh, and take a small group of people through through the house and actually, uh, you know, act out those those chapters of of uh, Joyce's life with passages from Ulysses, and then of course, what with one thing and another, that plan has gone out of the window, been or been shelved anyway. If not out of the window, it's on the shelf for a while until later in the year. And instead, we're we're going online. I guess we 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 originally thought of a, a big kind of Bloomsday Zoomsday as a sort of, um, as an approach, but we've refined it to uh, uh, 18 short films that we're going to play out on Bloomsday on Facebook. But I think what, what's different about our approach is they're actually going to be acted. We've got a, a great cast together. Our director has just about um, finished the, the casting and we have a great cast of people from all over the, all over the place who will be recording remotely. And uh, it's going to be a series of short films that come out on Bloomsday. All right. Very interesting. So with the scripts that you are using for these films, are they originals that you guys have just put together really quick? Or are they older things that you've adapted? We realized that actually we'd done most of the work because several years ago we put on a production called Ulysses Prestissimo, which was which was, to use an old English term, a bonkers idea. <laughs> it was a really mad idea to deliver the whole of Ulysses in one evening in a, in a two-hour show. So it's a very breathless pace. And obviously, we've got to be ruthless with the, with the scissors and really pare stuff back and also give it a kind of narrative structure as well. So we suddenly realized that most of the work had been done there. So we can take these. We've adapted them for a, uh, a very small screen, which is, I guess, where most people will be seeing these on, mm-hmm. on Facebook, probably on their, on their phones or on their laptop or whatever. Um, but that, that saved us a huge amount of work. How are you able to produce these? Are these all like solo scenes or monologues? Like how, I'm wondering how you would produce these scenes at a high quality while also maintaining some kind of social distance? Great question. We've obviously had to, to, to script with that in mind. And there will be, I suppose, a little bit of uh, trickery involved. And this is where I'm getting uncomfortable because I'm the one that's going to be doing the trickery. I'm, I'm kind of on a very steep learning curve as how to edit video. And I'm, I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. It should be OK, because for the most part, it, you know, if you're cutting from one face to another, um, just, you know, you'd be very familiar with this from the podcast. Of course, you've got you've got recordings in different sources and then you can you can edit them together and, and overlap them a, a little. But it should be challenging, particularly with episodes such as Circe, which is, um, you know, that's that's a real challenge. And, and uh, we've, we're kind of being a bit more ambitious there. So we'll have to see how that goes. Okay, yeah, I'm very curious to see how it comes out. Are there any like real highlights or things you're really excited to see? I, I don't know how much detail you want to go into to maintain some mystery, but yeah, like, what are your favorite parts, I guess? Well, uh, where, where we're at at the moment, Kelly, is that as we did the auditions um, with, with video as well. So we, um, our director, Jen Dean, put out a, a call and we had a, a lot of responses and people just recorded on their own their own phones and that was the first time that it, the thing had really come to life you know we kind of thought this is this is going to be a good approach um you know and there are, there are plenty of of readings of of Ulysses and I know you're doing one for, for Bloomsday as well and, and that's great we can't have too many of those but you know given all of the resources that we that voluntary resources we have at Bloomsday in in Melbourne we we wanted to do something that was even more ambitious than that and just to get to see those auditions we gave them a couple of passages obviously from the script to um to rehearse and use as their audition pieces 
you get a sense of of what an actor brings to to this to this material. And uh, as as unvisual as as Ulysses is, Joyce, you know, being nearly blind, I think that's that's probably got a lot to do with it. Um, but even so, the expressiveness of the of the faces close up and the and the emotion, you know, is mm-hmm. is uh, is. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, and I think that if you have strong enough performances, even if you don't have necessarily the costumes and the scenery that you may want to have, like people who are giving a really strong emotive performance can still really kind of draw you in and uh, make the that experience really great. Um, yeah, that that's right. And, and one of the things that we're, we're having our first get together soon by Zoom with with the cast. And one of the things that I enjoy is people coming to Joyce for the first time. In the, in this case, it's it's a largely young cast because actually the people in Ulysses are fairly young. You no, know, even even Leopold Bloom is is thirty eight. We tend to think of him as being in the middle of life, and I suppose then thirty eight was probably uh, a little bit uh, yeah. older than it is now, as it were. But we're get, we're getting a lot of people uh, every year when we put on a production who come to Ulysses for the first time. With all of the, you know, with the, all of the background prejudices that people have, that this is pretentious or um, Im- impossible, and I'm not sure that we managed to convert everyone to become, you know, dedicating the rest of their life to reading Joyce as he required. But certainly, I think they get a sense of, you know, this stuff is funny and and moving, and really thoughtful and and deep and. Uh, so I think that that sense of charged emotion can come through the screen if if you've if you've got a good enough director, which we have. Yeah, I I'm thinking of like films or TV shows I've seen that are very sparsely set. I, I, Derm and I just watched My Dinner with Andre, which is just two guys at a table talking, but it's very gripping and it's because of the performances. So I think that that you you guys can really bring a lot of oomph and life to your scripts, even over iPhones or Zoom or Facebook or whatever we have available. Um, It really is great to see people persevering with their art, despite these hurdles that have been placed in front of us, that there's still this drive to create and communicate. And I I really like doing that. Absolutely. I mean, our um, the, the art, our artistic director, as we call her now, really, she's the the kind of the, the motivating force for Bloomsday in Melbourne and has been from the start, Frances Devlin Glass. Uh, I'm getting the sense at this time of year, it's as if it's as if she comes, you know, to full charge. She's um, she's on fire and 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 she's already written um, a whole series of blogs that will that will accompany the pieces as they come out. She's thinking about the publicity. She's thinking about, you know, the casting and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it feels like a great opportunity for us to be able to do something, which in a way speaks to the speaks to the time because we're, I don't know about you, but, uh, uh, you know, social media is one of those things that you can do when you're in, in lockdown. And uh, I don't know if you've seen, for example, Patrick Stewart's reading of, the, of Shakespeare's sonnets. But that's a that's a great daily boost for for so many of us. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I know one thing that made me interested in your Bloomsday out of all the Bloomsdays in the world is your innovative approach to theater. And so I'm guessing after listening to me and maybe even listening to your your other episode where you talk at length about your guys' approach to Joycey and theater, I'm I'm hoping people will want to see your productions and. Oddly enough, because we're confined in a way to social media, maybe more people than ever can see your production. So this is a really long-winded way of asking, how can we see your <laughs> Yeah, uh, the main platform will be on, will be on Facebook. And the, the, the group is called, the group or the page is called Bloomsday 2020. I must admit, I, was, I, was, I had a little thrill of pleasure when I realized that, that that group name was available. I just thought it would have been snapped up long ago. So Bloomsday 2020, but we're called Bloomsday in Melbourne, and the films will be on our on our website as well, which is okay. bloomsdayinmelbourne.org.au. Um, all right, and then we will make sure to get links for all that stuff, and we'll put it in the show notes of this episode. So if you're listening right now, you can just click those links and have them bookmarked for June 16th. All right, well, thank you so much for letting us know about this. I know that I am going to be 
watching as many of these as I can. And they're coming out at least according to Australian time at the hours they would have occurred on Bloomsday. And then the later ones are a little more condensed. That's right. That's right. Uh, and we get the jump on the rest of the world in that sense, because we're um, I, I'm 17 hours ahead of you on this call, Kelly. So so it's wow. um, uh, we get the, the jump on the, on the rest of the world as far as getting Bloomsday off to a start is is concerned. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Uh, like I said before, we'll get those links in the show notes and best of luck to you with your very unique Bloomsday. Thank you, Kelly. It's uh, thank you for having me. And it's been great to chat. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.